0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: I'm Jesse Thorne. Have you seen It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia? Caitlin Olson plays a character named Sweet D. There's a scene where D startles, and honestly, I don't even remember why, runs out of a store... And it runs straight into a car parked on the sidewalk headfirst. Mm-hmm. It's like a beautiful ballet move.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I was very proud of that.
1: <laughs> How do you even manage the mechanics of it? I... Of convincingly running into a parked car headfirst.
2: You just do it and hope that people laugh. <laughs> and hope that nothing breaks again.
1: It's bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Caitlin Olsen. Your character, these self-obsession, evilness, <laughs> stupidity, absolutely mm. keeps pace with the male characters.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> she and I will talk about morally broken comedy characters and whether it's a good idea to fall in love with the creator of the TV show on which you act. Then later, I'll talk to Jeff Chang. About 10 years ago, he wrote Can't Stop, Won't Stop, A History of the Hip-Hop Generation. It won the American Book Award in 2005. His newest, now in paperback, is Who We Be, The Colorization of America. In some ways, it's a follow-up to the last one. It's about how art in America shapes and is shaped by race. You could
0: have this word diversity, and it's become another
1: sort of word for them, (laughs) as opposed to all of us together, which I think is what diversity was supposed to mean in the first place. He says that Americans of different backgrounds have grown closer over the past couple of decades, but we can still do more.
0: America has always been a mix of all these different cultures, and if it's working well, then these cultures are exchanging, and you get things
1: like Korean tacos, which are awesome, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> Plus, I'll tell you about one real-life superhero I find astonishing. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you always thought there were no heartwarming lessons on Seinfeld, well, you should try watching It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia sometime. Caitlin Olson's my guest. She's one of the stars. Her character, Sweet D, and three friends own a bar in Philadelphia, and they're sort of watched over by Danny DeVito, who's like a father figure. It's kind of complicated. It's a pretty normal sitcom setup that consistently goes completely insane. All five leads are some degree of stupid, insane, sometimes even evil, and they basically never win. So here's a perfect example. Dee in this scene and her brother Dennis have decided to get some money from the government by becoming addicted to crack cocaine. And then they're going to use that money to pursue their dreams. Dee wants to be an actress. Uh, Honestly, in practice, it is an even worse plan than it sounds like me describing it right now. So uh, as we listen in, they're in their Land Rover and they're trying to buy some crack rocks for the first time.
2: Okay. Thank you. We're all set. Friday, 3 o'clock, full blood work. Okay,
1: we'll just smoke a little a, bit. A
2: little, a little bit. Just enough and, to get into our system. Yeah, and then we'll go to the doctor and we'll get all of our paperwork and yeah. we'll get full benefits. And then we'll just
0: collect for just a little while until we get settled. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I'll take the MCATs.
2: And I'll move to New York. Perfect.
1: <laughs> oh, sh- oh my god. You scared us. Oh, not because you're black. What? No, 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 no. No, 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 no. We're no, not, not racist. You're, no, God. No, it's just that the neighborhood is If you were scary. another
2: ethnicity, you pop it. But it's up. a
0: nice neighborhood. No, I mean, it's an okay. It's the nature of this. Blow your window
1: down. Okay. What you need? Uh, one, please. One what? Uh, one, one rock of one crack. One crack. A crack rock. Is that enough? Is one crack rock enough? Um, See, I, I
2: don't... How much would you recommend for a first-time user?
1: Tell you what. I'll make you a deal. Two for the price of one.
2: Really? Oh, that sounds good. Oh, that's very nice of you. How much?
1: Two hundred dollars.
2: Okay. Sounds reasonable.
1: Uh-huh. Great. I spoke to Caitlin Olson last year. Caitlin Olson, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show.
2: Thank you. It's so good to be here.
1: Um, so I, I've been watching this show, I guess, now for what's it been, 10 years?
2: It feels like 30, but I think, yes, it's 10.
1: Um, and right from the start, one of the things that I liked best about it was there are. Plenty of sitcoms with the setup three guys and a girl are in such and such situation together or Mm -hmm. two guys and a girl are in such and such situation together. Usually in those shows, what happens is that the female lead's job is to wag a finger at the male leads. Yes. She doesn't get to do anything funny. (laughs) No. (laughs) Or anything. No.
2: She's the one that's like, you guys, come on, you guys. I'm going to point out how funny you are.
1: And on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, your character, Dee's self obsession, um, evilness, sometimes <laughs> evilness, stupidity, absolutely <laughs> keeps pace
2: with the male characters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I, <laughs> you know, I, I, when I first read these scripts, when, um, when they, brought them to me that was exactly how they were because and not because that's what they wanted it to be but because they were writing for themselves
1: meaning that they were exactly they were that classic sitcom thing of sort of an underdeveloped female protagonist whose job is just to wag wag a finger
2: that's right because they didn't have a, a woman in mind so they just were writing a female role and then really funny stuff for themselves so i read it and i thought i definitely want to do this but i want you to write that for me. I want you to write the guy role for me also. Um, Because there's no reason it can't be funny with all four of us. Um, In fact, it seems like it would be funnier the funnier you make it.
1: I (laughs) I read that you literally auditioned with a scene that was written for two of the male characters on the show.
2: It was I didn't even know that because they they changed the names uh, uh, you know obviously for the audition. So I read the audition was like this is amazing. Um and then I found out later that it was a Dennis and Charlie scene but they didn't have anything funny for the f- auditions for D so they just had to take something else, change it. So they uh, I felt duped. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, I I was writing a piece about the show the other day and I was trying to think Why is it that I care about these horrible, horrible people? Because almost never on the show do they make a choice that I support. No. No. (laughs) Like (laughs) on a moral level. Yeah, that's good. One of the things that I thought of was that there's something about the fact that they are so pathetic.
2: They're so broken. They're all so (laughs) sad and broken. And they're – Clearly their lives, their childhoods were all probably terrible. Um, they all were terrible. And they're, they're broken and they're just trying to like figure it out. And um, no one's being honest with themselves. Uh, I love that the Matt character is just now just completely gay. And that is so wonderful to me because he's like a staunch Catholic and homophobe. Um, yeah, they're just, they're just like broken people who are just trying to scrape their way out for 10 years now. Wasn't there an
1: episode that was called, like, Sweet D is Broken or The Gang Breaks D? The Gang, Sweet the gang D? Breaks
2: D, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they do it out on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> it makes them feel better about themselves because I was becoming a real downer. <laughs> the other thing that. And then the, the fact that they, at the end of that episode, that they celebrate it. It's almost like, Happy New Year! And they're almost crying with, like, congratulations for themselves and the champagne bottle. I mean, they're so proud of themselves that they pulled this wonderful thing off. (laughs) Acting that last scene was so easy because I was like, I was watching Charlie and Rob celebrate and jump up and down and hug each other and almost cry. It was so funny to me. It's so mean what they did. It's the cruel—I feel like that's the cruelest thing I can imagine.
1: Um, one of the nice things about T is how resolutely she clings to these dreams that she has. Mm-hmm. Do you have a feeling about what could possibly be leading her to still believe in herself?
2: <laughs> I don't know that she has anything else. I don't know that there's an alternative. You know, she she chose acting and <laughs> she just decided she was good at it and that the the guys are all idiots for not seeing it.
1: Did you always have that level of confidence about your own acting career?
2: (laughs) No, I mean, I was a I was not a confident child or teenager. But at a certain point, I think, you know, right around late high school, college, I realized that um, that I had a specific talent.
1: Did you imagine yourself being funny or being a beautiful ingenue?
2: Oh, God, no, 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 no. Just funny. I never thought of myself as beautiful. I got in like a horrific accident um, at the end of sixth grade, which was leading into junior high. That's a
1: perfect time to get into a horrific accident.
2: (laughs) Yeah. They had to shave my head. Um, My, I mean, it was so – the whole thing. It was so awful. And I had just – had like an awful four years with girls being mean to me in elementary school. I already was at my lowest and then that happened going Wait, into so junior so tell me, high.
1: what did they have to do? What kind of horrific accident and what did they have to do? I, I, uh,
2: I got, it was a bicycle accident. I was just going downhill. I had just taken my helmet off because I rounded the corner and left my parents' house and I was the only person that had to wear a helmet back then. So I took it off because it was ugly. <laughs> and then I slammed on my brakes going downhill and I flew over the handlebars and I landed on my face and like the four top Teeth stayed attached, but were kind of in the back of my mouth. And then the bike landed on my head and punched a giant hole in my head. So I had all this like reconstructive surgery on my lip and um, a giant scar from ear to ear and a shaved head. And I already, I already hated myself. <laughs> it was What's this like time.
1: going into middle school? Like
2: it literally was the end of sixth grade, which was the end of elementary school. So yeah, like I had that summer to recover, and then I had to start junior high school and i just that just like sealed it in i was i was very insecure and scared and um i spent most of junior high feeling like that so no i never i never ever thought of myself as beautiful i like i think i somewhere in the next 4 years tried to find a way to just be in the world and and comedy ended up you know being my thing
1: where where how do you think you found that
2: how do i think i found it Well, I always loved acting and that was true from um, an earlier age, even younger than all of this, but I never did it at school because I was too scared. I wanted to be in plays in junior high, but I was way too afraid. Um, I didn't even take a theater class. By the time I hit high school, I started um, becoming involved in the theater department and um, just immediately felt at home and safe and people were nice to me there and I made good friends and I did great plays and I got great feedback and... um, and then, I, you know, we did a couple comedies, and I just was—it was fun, and I felt—I don't want to say it was easy. I just felt really comfortable, and I was free to play around, and it just—I I enjoyed it, and I got great feedback. And I was like, well, this is, this is better than I've felt in <laughs> eight years.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Caitlin Olson. She's one of the stars of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. She plays Sweet D. The show's now in its 11th season on FXX. I want to play another scene from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So in this scene, Dee is trying on wedding dresses and then um, the employee at the store starts to kind of question why she's still trying on wedding dresses. And then she runs into an old friend.
2: I think I'm going to need some proof that you're actually getting married. What? Why? Because you've been coming in here and trying on wedding dresses every Saturday for over a year now? Yeah, that's because it takes a really long time to plan a wedding. Don't get up all over my b- Lucy. Just go get the dresses. When is the wedding? Soon. Where? A church. Which one? The nearby one. The nearby one? The, right down the street. Which street? Spring. What's your fiance's name? Sam? What does he do? Sa- salt. Salt? He's sea salt, sea salt. He's a salt seaman. He's, he dives into the ocean for the sea salt. And then he brings it back up, and then we eat it. So, okay, I'm getting the manager. Well, don't get the. Uh, damn it!
1: D Reynolds? Yeah. Brad Fisher, from <gasps> high school.
2: Brad Fisher. No way! <laughs> you look amazing. Yeah. Your acne cleared up really well.
0: I kind of grew into myself. Yes, <laughs> you
2: did. Yes, you did. Why did I ever break up with you? you it was because of the acne. Was it because of the yeah, acne? Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, when it got real bad, you dumped me and you said it was because I was going to grow up to look like Edward James Olmos.
2: Uh, I don't really remember saying exactly that. It's,
1: it's fine. We were kids. We were kids. We were kids!
2: Yeah. <laughs> we're not kids anymore. No. <laughs> Great.
1: So, um... At what point did you start dating the creator of the show?
2: (laughs) Wasn't that a good idea? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was during season two, and it was a secret because we were smart enough to know that it was so stupid. Um, But, you know, everything that you've said, every compliment that you've directed towards the show, that's all Rob. So that's extremely attractive. He's an amazing Uh, he's an amazing guy and it was so impressive what he did. And it was also impressive how he runs our show. So then watch him run it and then, um, you know, write them and, uh, in between takes come up with funny ideas for me, things for me to try. He's just a really amazing person and I couldn't help it. I knew that I knew it was really stupid. I could get myself fired. (laughs) Uh, or we could ruin the dynamic or I could come to work sad. I mean, I definitely had all those thoughts during that first year. Um, but we liked each other. It worked out.
1: <laughs> was there a point where you decided, like, oh, I guess this isn't stupid?
2: Yeah, it, it was actually pretty quickly. It felt like forever, but it, it was just during that, f- that second season. We only shoot for about two and a half months. Um, that two and a half fu- months felt like a really long time. But at the end of that... That sounds so stupid and cliche, but after a few months I kinda just knew that I would spend my life with him. He he was perfect for me and I loved him and I knew he loved me. And then we had to break it to everyone else because we kept it a secret from them the whole time. <laughs> Which was terrifying. What what
1: did you like sit down at a conference table? <laughs>
2: yes, we called a conference. We asked everyone to wear their formal wear. <laughs> this was important. Yeah, like black tie, like uh-huh. full tuxedos That's and right. everything. Yes, this was this was love. Okay. Okay, sure. Um No. Well, Rob lived with Glenn. So it came as a total shock to Glenn because he was – Rob was over at my house so often during those few months. Glenn – you know, his excuse to Glenn was that he had a date, had a different date. So Glenn's thinking that this entire time he's just dating his ass off, like, so many different women. And um, so when he told him that we were, like, dating – like seriously and in love with each other glenn was like what are you talking about you've <laughs> been with like 200 women in the last 3 months um he told him and then we we went to new york for press i think that at the end of that season and um after a party and a lot of drinks we broke it to mary elizabeth and charlie and i was so nervous i started crying <laughs> <laughs> 'cause i thought they would hate i thought they would hate me i thought they were going thinking i was going to yoko ono the whole situation and it was their show you know and and i felt like i was the one who was coming in and threatening it and uh you know i don't think they loved it they say they were fine with it but i think they they had concerns um but literally by the end of that year rob and i were like totally together and inseparable it's not adorable
1: what's it like for the four of you, and especially for you and your husband, your husband having created the show, to imagine a world in which the show doesn't exist?
2: It's a great question. Especially for us, that's, you know, we met on it. It's going to be strange when it's just not there anymore. Um, But, you know, by now we've been married for almost seven years, and we clearly have our own life that's uh, separate from either of our work and our kids. And so I, I think he feels pressure. I'm, I, I assume, I'm sure he feels pressure to um, create something else that works and not just be the guy who created one show that lasted for 10 years, 12 years. But really, I'm used to him working and me working on different projects We only come together to work on this for two months out of the year. I just want to make sure that I can go on and do something else that's uh, equally as fulfilling because I feel like I've sort of got the best of everything right now, including my family there.
1: Do you think there's a potential for uh, dignified roles in your future?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I am a classy lady underneath (laughs) all of this, Okay, So, yes, I will prove it. Dignified. I don't know. Do I want to be dignified? I don't even know that I want to be a dignified character. Look, I'll figure something out. I don't know.
1: Caitlin Olson, I really appreciate you coming on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you.
2: Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me.
1: Caitlin Olson. She's one of the stars of the sitcom It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which just began its 11th season. It airs Wednesday nights on FXX. After a break, I'll talk to Jeff Chang about his book, Who We Be, The Colorization of America. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Let's take a moment to thank and share a message from our sponsor, Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can avoid trips to the post office. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your computer. 500,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. Right now, sign up for a special offer, a four-week trial plus a digital scale and free postage. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone, and type in Bullseye. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. NPR Music's tiny desk isn't just any old office desk. It's a stage for artists like Adele, John Legend, Sylvan Esso, Casey Musgraves, The National, and of course, T-Pain singing without autotune. One of my personal favorites, Dan Deacon. And if you're an undiscovered musician, you could play there, too. Just submit a video to the Tiny Desk Contest for a chance to launch your path to stardom. Find out how to enter at npr.org slash tinydeskcontest. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Jeff Chang was a member of the first majority-minority class at UC Berkeley in 1985. He lived the cultural upheaval that turned the melting pot into the tossed salad. He was there for the mainstreaming of multiculturalism and all the benefits and problems that that led to. His latest book, now available in paperback, is Who We Be, The Colorization of America. It's a cultural history of how the ideal of one American culture became an ideal of multiculturalism. A nation of people with a shared cultural identity, but also cultural distinctiveness. It's all about the generation who, like me, grew up with that ideal and sometimes chafed against it. A generation that maybe sort of wanted to be post-racial. Jeff Chang and I spoke last year. Welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you back on the show. Ah, uh, it's so wonderful to be here, Jesse. So I am impressed that you named your book about your your like uh, thoughtful scholarly history of multiculturalism and culture. Uh, After a DMX song, (laughs) a man probably best known, uh, his best known form of discourse, probably dog sounds. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, (laughs) Yeah,
0: you know, it was for me, it was it was sort of a it's an inside joke, I think, for all of us who who came up on hip hop um, and uh, and also sort of a direct retort to. You know the the, the culture warriors uh, during the '80s and the '90s, and even up to now really who who are like, "What happened to the America we grew up in? why can't we have that back? Who are we anymore? Well, this is who we be so um, <laughs> so th- I'm glad you caught that hip hop head like you are
1: well, let's talk about how the counter narrative to the idea of the melting pot uh, came to be um. Where did the idea of multiculturalism come from? Well, you know, what you saw, I think,
0: after the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and the Immigration and Nationality Act in the mid-60s was um, the legal structure for, you know, discrimination and segregation being brought down uh, or dismantled. Uh, But... There were no visions necessarily at that particular point of how people were supposed to live together. You know, legislation just can't do that. So artists began, I think, to take a prominent role. This is sort of the cultural turn in the movement, if you will. And I think that by really what you see by the late 60s is a lot of these different types of movements beginning to flourish. And it takes an intellectual kind of turn in 1968 and here in the Bay Area with the outbreak of the Third World Strike at San Francisco State and UC Berkeley, which inaugurate the idea of ethnic studies. And suddenly, from Berkeley to Stanford to Harvard to all the campuses in between, there's, there are these debates about intellectually what sh- should we be studying about the American people uh, that kind of take this narrative, this sort of everybody's going to melt into this one big pot, this old sort of Isaac Zangwill idea, and uh, begins to... To say, well, there's always been people of a bunch of different cultures who have come here, and uh, let's look at that. And so by 1975, you know, about eight years later, seven years later, I'm not doing the math here, but Ishmael Reed, who wrote this book, Mumbo Jumbo, um, actually creates the term, drops this term, multi into the Berkeley Barb, this alternative newspaper in Berkeley. And what you have is this flourishing counterculture um, Really, you know, after all these other kinds of countercultures that have been so talked about, free love and summer of love and all these other kinds of things, you have this new counterculture that's really led uh, by people of color um, and is uh, about all of these, but, you know, not exclusive. Uh, There's a lot of white artists who are involved with this as well. Um, But this, this counterculture that's creating a space now to talk about America in a completely different type of way.
1: So, Jeff, you may or may not know this about me, um, and, you know, some dedicated listeners may know this about me, but I'm a white person. Um, <laughs> Are you really? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> and, you know, my my uh, forefathers and foremothers came from, in some cases, England, but also There were uh, Irish and German and, you know, uh, 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 Quakers. uh, And, you know, my grandmother made sauerkraut at home. And my mom sometimes talks about how the whole house used to smell like sauerkraut. But. Um, You know, I was able to uh, let go of those identities and just see myself as an American. Right. So what is the problem with the melting pot? And also for anyone who's listening, please understand that in part I'm taking the devil's advocate position here. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I you know I would say that she probably didn't let go of those. If you you know you still have you're still eating sauerkraut. I'm imagining you have all these memories now uh, of eating sauerkraut. Just the same way that that our our house can smell like curry uh, sometimes when I'm you know making curry, or or it can smell like stew when I'm making beef stew. You know, the peepee stew, Hawaiian uh, beef stew in the house. Um, you know, the notion wasn't necessarily uh, from these multiculturalists that. Uh, that we had to let go of being American, and I think this is what the critique of multiculturalists got wrong, Um, it was that America has always been a mix of all these different cultures, and if it's working well, then these cultures are exchanging, and you get things like Korean tacos, which are awesome, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm dumbing it down, obviously, a lot, right? But this is sort of the really basic radical proposal that multiculturalists are putting forth in the 1970s um, that it didn't need to be about assimilating to a white uh, sort of WASP ideal, that people could find different ways into being American, um, and that we could still find common meaning. And I think that the critique of multiculturalists, especially during the 80s and the 90s when I was in college, during the culture wars of that era, was that multiculturalists would balkanize the U.S., that we'd split into this babel of people who couldn't relate to each other, that weren't talking with each other, that were fighting each other all the time. It was going to be this time of rising tensions. Um, and I think during the backdrop of the Los Angeles riots, it might have looked like that. But I think that it, it, it's, it's possible now to look back at these last 25 years or so and say, well, no, that's actually not what happened. Uh, we figured out new ways to grow towards each other. Um, and we still need to do more. And that's, I think, uh, a lot of the the impetus for why I tried to write the book.
1: You know, there's something interesting that you said there, which I think we could probably pull on the string of, which is that the expectation of the melting pot as a cultural construction is that people will assimilate into a quote-unquote Americanness. But Americanness in that construction is typically defined as, um, you know, you described it as a waspy sort of whiteness. But, I mean, I think even now, if you asked 100 people to describe what is essentially American, they might be inclined to describe something like, you know, the Draper family in season one of Mad Men. Mm. Um, And uh, that is not a vision that necessarily includes uh, people of color or other non waspy people, so that my my Irish ancestors maybe had the ability eventually to make the choice to become that, but your Chinese and Hawaiian ancestors never could have made that choice in in the way that mine did
0: yeah, and the, you know the a lot of i think um what was lost uh, about that critique was that assimilation. And you can read it in all these different types of books that that come out during this period, right? Uh, and in, and even till now, is assimilation meant uh, that there was a certain sense of loss that was occurring? Um, and and so I don't know. You, you know, you take a book, say like Joy Luck Club, or that kind of thing, and and you see that there's this struggle around identity that's occurring at the heart of it. Um, and then, you, you know, you, you take that then and you maybe compare it to like Juno Diaz, right, um, now writing Oscar Wilde and doing it like pr- quite proudly in Spanish and English and um, saying, hey, this is who I am. You might have to do a little work to catch up with me, but it'll be worth the trip if you, if you want to take it along with me. Um, and I think that that's the much more complicated U.S. that we have now so that the U.S. looks like the Obama family as much as the Draper family
1: and that white americans or uh, the dominant culture have been asking people of color and other people outside of that culture to do that work to catch up with them for all of you know for all of american history that it's always been our expectation that uh people who are different from us will do the work to catch up with us mm. And, you know, and, and I think that one of the important points about that is that
0: when we say uh, talk about diversity, I went and did a, a college talk for Diversity Week at a campus, and um, the administrator there who organized it was really frustrated because she said, you know, it's hard to engage the white students around this because they don't think diversity includes them. Um, and I thought, wow, that's, that's a really interesting concept that you could have this word diversity, and it's become another sort of word for them as opposed mm-hmm. to all of us together, which I think is what diversity was supposed to mean in the first place. And so that's part of the conversation that we kind of have to broach at this particular point in history is, is how do we get to an all of us uh, rather than us versus them type of thing.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to writer Jeff Chang. His most recent book is Who We Be, The Colorization of America. Tell me a little bit about Spiral, this group of artists who who were among the first to really hash out some of these issues through art.
0: This was a collective of black artists who were energized by uh, what was happening in the civil rights movement in the South. Um, all the organizing that's happening around the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Um, and in the sort of lead up to the March on Washington began meeting and talking about what is it that we can do as artists in order to support the movement, but also to uh, transform the arts world? And you're talking about some of the the major major artists of the time. You know, you're talking about uh, Jacob Lawrence and Romero Me- uh, Bearden and um, all these other kinds of folks who are all deeply involved and in, in, engaged. Norman Lewis engaged in uh, thinking about these issues and putting it into their art. Um, and so they came together. And started to do uh, a number of exhibitions that were really about presenting uh, black art at the time. And the, the point is at this particular point uh, that uh, black artists were invisible. People just literally did not see their work. And uh, so, you know, the the collective met for for a number of years, and they had a number of really, really interesting debates about what would it really take to be able to support the movement. Um, Did they need to subvert their art to the political aims of the movement? Uh, Did they express themselves better by uh, really working on their formal Uh, Development Like, these kinds of questions, I think, still last through to today. And they're what I think we can call the burden of representation, that the artists had to figure out how they would represent themselves. Um, And I think that this continues all the way up through now. You know, even thinking about NBA stars walking onto the court with I Can't Breathe shirts on, the burden of representation that they're taking on there, Um, you know, the the knowledge that they're going to have a backlash uh, coming from Um, a whole number of different sectors, um, and are they representing uh, the race um, or are they representing their individual um, points of view? All of these questions still swirl for artists of color and and, and I think anybody public of color.
1: How do you think the fact that you are uh, Hawaiian um, informed your understanding of the culture and politics of race? Well, when I first moved from Hawaii to California to go to school at UC
0: Berkeley in the mid-80s, within the first couple of weeks, uh, I had all of these different kinds of street microaggressions, I guess you could call them now, um, you know, ranging from stuff that was, you know, uh, physical to just sort of being called out, you know, everything from, from frat boys to hippies to just whoever. Uh, so I was reminded um, that I was a minority you know, in very
1: stark, unforgiving kinds of ways. For folks who don't live in the world of, you know, the academics of uh, race and culture, maybe you could give us an example uh, so that we have some understanding of the kind of microaggressions you're talking about. I'd be riding my bike down the
0: street and uh, some hippie would be like, hey man, get out of the way, go back to where you came from. Um, Or I'd be standing on the corner with uh, another Chinese American friend and uh, a whole bunch of uh, frat boys would be walking down the street and say, Oh, look at them, let's go pick on them, and you know, uh, start grabbing us, pushing us around, you know, using all kinds of uh, slurs, racial slurs, you know. Um, that kind of stuff happened within the first couple of weeks of me moving to Berkeley, right? The liberal paradise, right? And so I'm going, Wow. And so that kind of uh, colored, I guess, you know, my 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 uh, sense of race when I grew up in Hawaii. Um, you know, I had, um, friends who are Haole, who are white, um, Haole is the Hawaiian term for white. Um, and, uh, you know, we would joke around with each other. Everybody would call each other names and that kind of stuff. And it meant something, it was different, you know, it was because we were all minorities in a way. Um, and so it, it's, it, it was, uh, it was stark and it was really interesting. And for me to, to try to think those issues through, that became, I think, sort of my, time at UC Berkeley. And this coordinated, this sort of converged with these national culture wars that were happening because I was of a cohort, I guess you could say, of like hundreds of thousands of young people of color who, because of the civil rights legislation um, and policies, uh, were coming onto the campuses in large numbers during the 80s and the 90s for the first time. And Uh, got drawn into the movements of the time, the anti-apartheid movement and then the sort of diversity or anti-racism movements that kind of came out of it uh, after that, which still haven't necessarily even been named within American history. We don't even really talk about it in American history, but which have totally conditioned the moment that we're kind of living through right
1: now. I'll finish my conversation with Jeff Chang after a break. He'll talk about whether or not Americans' reluctance to talk about race has anything to do with our upbringing. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Hey, if you're a musician or you know somebody who is, listen up. NPR Music is giving undiscovered artists the chance to play a tiny desk concert in Washington, D.C. Any style of music goes. Just send us a video of you playing an original song at a desk to enter. Now, you heard that right at a desk. Find out more at npr.org slash contest. Podcasts. Podcasts.
0: Podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> They're audio programs that, that tell smart stories
2: in innovative ways <laughs> using editing techniques like, like this. this, like this,
1: like this, yeah. 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 Yeah.
2: but let's
0: face it, all that smart stuff can be exhausting. That's where Stop Podcasting Yourself
2: comes in. It's so stupid. It's just two stupid dinguses being dumb idiot jerks for 90 minutes. Stop podcasting yourself. The stupid show that
1: smart people love. Find it on iTunes or MaximumFun.org. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on Bullseye is the author Jeff Chang. You might know him for his first book, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, A History of the Hip Hop Generation. His most recent book is Who We Be, The Colorization of America. It looks at how Americans feel about race today and about how that's changed over the last few decades. Jeff Chang and I spoke last year. One of the big turning points in the story that you tell in your book is something that for me is just like a very hazy memory. But for you just a little bit older than me, it must have been a cultural event that almost has no parallel and that's the riots in Los Angeles in the early 1990s. Um, can you tell me uh, how you think that that event changed the course of culture in the United States and especially the culture of um, race and ethnicity? Absolutely,
0: in so many ways. And, you know, for back in the day, I think when we would compare ourselves to the baby boomers and we still had that chip on our shoulder— we would say that 1992 was like our 1968, you know what I mean? Um, and in 1991, you kind of look at the culture wars, and Time magazine has this cover that says, literally, the cover line is, Who Are We?, and, uh, and it says something about how students are getting a divisive view of American history. And they're talking about uh, the rise of ethnic studies and how it's transforming the landscape at that particular point. And this is, you know, the, the, the battles of the canon, the canon the cannon wars, uh, the culture wars are, are raging in, in full effect. The riots in some ways, you know, serve as like this moment in which it's a wake up call. And so on the one hand, what you see is those of us who are in the hip hop world, we begin to start flexing our ambitions to crash the mainstream. Vibe magazine comes out of this particular era, right? This uh, this magazine that was launched, you know, with Quincy Jones and um, a whole partnership of a lot of big money folks saying, it's our time, we really have to do this now. So that was sort of one of the ways in which you saw the ambitions of of the hip-hop generation being manifest was in this magazine that was going to show the world, represent once and for all, what it meant to be a young person um, in a diverse culture in America on the sort of eve of the ele- of the millennium, right? And then after this, you have hip-hop's great breakthrough, 1993, uh, 1994, 1995, the rise of Dr. Dre and Death Row and uh, Diddy and Bad Boy and um, hip-hop taking over the charts and becoming sort of the main uh, cultural sort of reference point for an entire generation, not just in the U.S., but globally. That's happening. And at the same time, corporations are looking at all of this and they're saying, most of the world is not white and suburban. Most of the world is young, urban, and not white. And so how can we figure out a way to get at the world? How can we globalize our consumer brands? And hip hop becomes the perfect vehicle for them to be able to do that. So hip hop, in a lot of ways, inaugurates the sort of globalization of a lot of these american consumer companies and i think by the end of the decade what you see literally is even the republicans who have been very much anti-affirmative action you know nathan glazer one of the leading opponents of affirmative action writes a book we are all multiculturalists now uh and george bush's cabinet is more diverse than um pretty much any other cabinet in in u.s history right with Uh, All of these appointments, Alberto Gonzalez, Condoleezza Rice, and, of course, um, uh, Colin Powell. Uh, And so, you know, and and when he does that, it's said in the press, this is just the way that business gets done now. So between the riots and the turn of the millennium is when you see multiculturalism's big, big crossover.
1: I want to ask you about another cultural artifact that you wrote about in the book that, that I thought was really interesting. There's this director named Charles Stone III, and he made his name in the mid-'90s directing hip-hop videos for, you know, what you might call the creme de la creme of artsy or alternative hip-hop artists like A Tribe Called Quest and The Roots. Um, Didn't he direct the What They Do video for The Roots? Yes, yes, yeah. A famous a classic now. Yeah, a a famous video that essentially played out as a traditional hip-hop video, you know, pretty girls not wearing a lot of clothes and a lot of pouring of champagne and driving of really fancy cars, but with a subtitle track that sort of interrogated every single thing that happened. Um, And when it became clear to him that the music video economy uh, wasn't going to be in the 21st century, what it had been in the 20th century, um, he decided to make a short film. And the short film... Uh, was called True and I, I wonder if you could describe that film for me.
0: True was uh, a very very short film um, of a guy lying on his couch watching a, a, a basketball game and uh, he gets a call on uh, those old sort of you know wireless phones there about 15 pounds and picks it up and uh and the whole conversation was pretty much like, what's up? What's up? You know, what you doing? Nothing. Watching the game. Having a brew. True. You know? And it's it's that's it. But this what's up thing becomes uh, uh, something that everybody can relate to. Um, it's very specific to this group of friends. They're all uh, black. There's one Puerto Rican. And so this gets made into the, a commercial. Budweiser uh, picks it up, um, and this becomes the famous Wasab commercial. Um, and it takes off. It goes all kinds of places. They go to Cannes, they, they win all kinds of awards. They're being feeded. These are just uh, several guys from Philly who just have this strange greeting that they use for each other. And at some point, Budweiser says, Okay, let's do this, but let's do it with aliens. Or let's do it with, uh, you know, cartoon characters. Or let's do it with, you know, whatever. Uh, a whole bunch of different types of, of, of groups. And at that point, Charles says, "No, that's not what this is about. This is about the specificity of these young guys chilling, and that everybody can relate to that um, in that specificity." Um, and so he he backs kind of out of it. Uh, but it's sort of The story in some ways, too, of how multiculturalism um, moves in all these different types of directions after its initial idea. You have this radical initial idea, which is about just representing people as they live, right? As they do their thing, Um, and that that might increase empathy. It might develop uh, a bond between the viewer, the listener, the reader, and the artist, um, and the community that the artist comes from. And at some point, the, you know, corporate sort of folks come in and say, well, yeah, well that's, but that's replicable because so we can, we can make a, a joke of this and sort of take it in, in all these other directions that aren't intended. And that's when you see this radical idea becoming sanded clean for dumbed-down kind of consumption. And this is the part where the artists are like, I'm out of here.
1: My guest on Bullseye is the author Jeff Chang. His book is called Who We Be, The Colorization of America. It looks at how Americans feel about race today and about how that's changed over the last few decades. So Jeff, um, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a millennial, and you might have heard about us and our buying power.
0: Oh yeah, that's there, there, there was a book or something or a report about <laughs> that, yeah, sure.
1: Um, and I wonder how you think Culture and identity politics play out differently for, um, you know, your, you live in Berkeley, for Lil B, um, <laughs> right. the rapper or, or you know, Zadie Smith or whatever, um, than they did for your generation or the generation before you the, that you write about in the book.
0: It's interesting, you know, because I think with every generation – since the civil rights you know, revolution, uh, there's been so much hope. And every generation comes in, and it's more diverse than the previous generation. And uh, we have so much hope that they'll get to a place that we as a generation could not get to. And you, you hear it, right? You hear it pretty much in all of Obama's uh, speeches, you know, after uh, horrible racial incidents occur now. You always hear him coming back to having hope for Sasha and Malia and their generation to kind of work things on out. And, you know, I'd like to believe in that. Um, I have, you know, kids now uh, who are millennials and post-millennials. I don't have that many kids, but I have a kid who's a millennial and a kid who's a post-millennial. Let me put it that way. Um, as defined by whoever's defining this stuff, because as we know, generations are fictions. But anyway, in any case, <laughs> the, 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 I'd like to see that happening. What came out earlier this year was an MTV and David Binder poll that I found really, really interesting. It found that something like four in five millennials believe that colorblindness is the way that we need to go in American society. Like That would be the ultimate ideal to achieve. And it also found that something like four and five millennials believe that we need to respect everybody uh, for their diversity and understand and respect difference. And I look at that and I go, wow, those are actually competing positions in the culture wars, you know, the culture wars back in the 80s and the 90s when I was their age and, and certainly the culture wars now uh, when, you know, they are coming of age uh, and they're they're in some ways incompatible positions. And so we're we I don't know what the position is that we should be taking um I have some ideas, but I'm not really sure that they're you know necessarily the ideas that need to be put into place, but I certainly know that these two positions are incompatible and yet equally held by the millennial generation and so we're confused we're confused about race we're still sort of living through the culture wars we're still living through um the the legacy of it. And we haven't necessarily come to a point or a place where we can move forward in the discussion. The discussion still seems to be stalled, this famous race conversation that we're supposedly supposed to have from 1997 on. We haven't gotten any further with it. So I, you know, I'm of two minds about it. I'm very, very hopeful because you can't not be. Um, But on the other hand, I'm worried about the the notions of colorblindness and, those kinds of things that get reproduced from generation to generation that prevent us actually from talking honestly about race and culture and its impact and racial discrimination and injustice and inequality and all those fun things, um, that we kind of have to get to, 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 uh, to move forward.
1: Do you think that we've been raised to be afraid to talk about those things?
0: I do. Uh, there, and this has borne out in studies as well. There uh, was a landmark kind of study from the University, or Vanderbilt University, uh, several years ago that looked at parenting and whether or not parents of white children or parents of children of color um, have discussions about race. And it found that 75% of white parents don't want to talk to their kids or don't have their conversation with their kids about race. And that, you know. Ch- parents of children of color are two to five times more likely to have that conversation with their young children about race. Um, And I think it comes from goodwill. Like we look at the past and we look at, wow, you know, such horrible things were done in the name of dividing us by the way that we look. So if we just ignore it and don't talk about it, then maybe we'll be able to, to move forward with our lives. But that does damage to all those folks who have to grow up with that um who have to kind of experience that as you say as you put it every time they walk out of their door and so yeah i think we're we've we've been taught to be uh afraid to talk about it and in some ways multiculturalism came along broke it open you had this huge sort of raging debate about these issues and what we were left uh, with at the end of the day was we know what not to say like if I was standing on the corner in Berkeley and a bunch of frat boys were coming down, uh, they might still physically harass me and my friend Mark, but they would know not to call us <laughs>
1: You know what I mean?
0: <laughs> they would just know that. Like, that's not cool. Like, then it would be a racial incident and they could get, you know, prosecuted under hate crime uh, penalties. Um, so we know what not to say with each other, to, to each other, but we don't know what to say next. And that's the problem. That's where we're at at this particular strange moment in history.
1: Well, Jeff, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on Bullseye. It was great to get to talk to you again.
0: Uh, Thanks so much, Jesse. You're the
1: best. Jeff Chang is the author of Who We Be, The Colorization of America. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. I think what's interesting about being superhuman is that you're super, but you're still human. Like Spider-Man turning in photos to the Daily Bugle, Batman being lonely. They're not gods. They're just people trying to deal with this extra thing. What I'm trying to get to here is that Andre the Giant was superhuman. In the mail the other day, I got a comic book biography of him written by a guy called Box Brown. Just pulling it out of the package was a rush of memories. I wasn't ever really a wrestling fan, at least not like the other kids on the St. Mary's Park baseball team. They used to talk for hours about Hulk Hogan and The Undertaker and all those guys, but the only one I ever really cared about was Andre the Giant. Because he was real. I mean, it was a show, but he was real. Seven foot four, 500 pounds. His whole body was marked by this disease that made him so big, but I always thought he was something like beautiful. Maybe the breadth of his face, the pain of just being alive was written across it all the time. When he was older, that's when I saw him, just moving around was hard for him and you could see it. But then he'd show you this gorgeous, generous smile. Box Brown's biography gets to that. The way that this French country boy could walk into a room and immediately be alienated from and ingratiated, to all the people in it. His fellowship with his manager and the wrestlers he worked with, and the loneliness of years on the road squeezed into two small bus seats. The subtitle of the book is Life and Legend, and there's a lot of legend around Andre. There's a lot of legend around wrestling, too, of course. It's a mix of real and show, and some of the best parts of the book give us a sort of inside-out look at the dramas in the ring. The story inside the story that I think wrestling fans these days love, but was totally foreign to those kids I played baseball with. Honestly, I don't think it really matters what's true and what isn't about Andre the Giant. There's something about the astonishing reality of Andre's frame and the crushing humanity of his face that make it all as good as real. The stories about his drinking and carousing live in the same both at once true and not true world as what he did in the squared circle. Andre the Giant didn't make himself bigger than life. He just was. He was superhuman. That's my outshot. And now, Henry Naring, the eighth wonder of the world,
0: 438 pounds. Andre the Giant! There is no other human being on Earth larger than Andre the Giant. And historic human being...
1: Come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Abadian Xparello. Production assistant is Christian Duenas. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally, thanks to him. Thanks also to the Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, who provided our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org to listen to them. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can hear our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture, hosted by comedian Guy Branham. This week, the team give out their Pop-Tart Awards for the best pop culture of 2015. A slightly embarrassing name, a very fun show. They also had a great show uh, last week that was all about the new Star Wars movie, and it is like the most fascinating discussion of the new Star Wars movie that I've heard anywhere, so you should go check that out. I guess that's about it. Just remember all great radio hosts have a signature sign off.